0: Good morning. Welcome back to Sunday School. Good to be back with you. Good to be back uh, looking at our Answers Bible curriculum together. Uh, Many and big thanks to Caleb, who led Sunday School last week. You did a great job. I trust you benefited from the extended discussion regarding Scripture and presuppositional apologetics. Also, thank you for your prayers for me. I know many of you have uh, uh, been praying for me as I just finished up my fourth semester at the Master's Seminary. Uh, it was a great feeling to turn in my last assignment yesterday. So I'm uh, looking forward to a little bit of a break before I, I tackle winter classes again. Uh, thank you. Also, thank you. Um, those of you who are thinking about, uh, or just also the, the ability to go on a retreat last weekend with our fellowship group at Grace Community Church. That was a, a really enjoyable time, a refreshing time, allowed Emma and I to get to know some of the other. Believers that we get to fellowship with here at uh, in Los Angeles. So that was a nice, refreshing time. But I'm I'm excited to get back into more Bible teaching with you. Oh, I should also mention that um Emma's, or just because, uh, or I mentioned I think in my email that Emma's been taking a counseling class, and that has finished up for for now. And so Emma's also kind of uh, having the release of uh, finishing up uh, the, the assignments for class. So we're both feeling very um, very grateful to the Lord for what he's accomplished this semester. Also, just a reminder, Lord willing, I will be with you in person next Sunday, and that'll be really exciting. Emma and I have the opportunity to travel to New Jersey for just a real short time for we need to get back to um or I need to get back at least to, to the classes for my winter session. Anyway, so that'll be really good. I look forward to seeing you in person. But today, what are we doing today? Today we're returning to the seven seas of history. We spoke about this about, or we spoke about this in relation to the gospel two weeks ago. We use the seven seas of history as a way to explain the bad news and the good news of the gospel, that, or that which makes up the saving message about Jesus. But That discussion had to be somewhat brief and we had to march through the seven C's somewhat quickly to reach our goal. Today we're going to look at the seven C's at a more leisurely pace with time to pause, smell some roses. Our goal this time with the seven C's is to see how they function as a viable framework for understanding world history. We're also going to give approximate dates for these seven C's in history. And we'll do a little bit of discussion on why we assign those dates. And finally, we'll look at how this outline of history, this biblical outline of history, compares to the outline asserted by our supposedly wise and advanced Western society. We're going to see how much the biblical view clashes with our culture's view of the history of mankind. Now, main scriptures were. That are relevant to today's discussion are ones that we discussed two weeks ago. So I'm actually not going to be reading that much scripture today, but I will point out certain relevant verses that we didn't look at before. I will paraphrase a number of verses though, so obviously this is still going to be a Bible lesson. Everything that we're talking about is coming from the Bible. Anyways, let's pray before we go further. Great God, I thank you for all that you've accomplished And what you continue to accomplish, you are so gracious to us, your people. God, I pray that you be gracious in a special way now and that you'd enable me to speak uh, helpfully and accurately your word, help me to speak your truth. And I pray, God, that it would encourage, edify, convict all the things that you use your word to do. I pray that you would do that among your people at Calvary and anyone else who might listen to this, God. For your glory. Amen. Okay. Well, we're obviously talking again about history today. And if and you may know that I, I am partial to studying history, like Caleb, it's part of what I studied in college. I've been fascinated with history since my youth. And I love history, not only because it's interesting, but it also explains a lot why the world is the way that it is today. And if we can know why the world is the way that it is, it shows us, or if we know how, why it is the way that it is and how it got that way, we can act more wisely in the world. History shows us to some degree how we should act in the world. Well, the Bible, because it is, well no, the Bible, besides being supernatural revelation from God, is also a history book. It contains other genres, to be sure, Poetry, prophecy, epistle, but even these genres draw on and explain the implications of what actually happened and what actually was said in history. The Bible is not a book of feel good stories, fables, moral principles. It is a presentation of, and it is an explanation of, and it is a reaction to history. The Bible is the true history of God creating and revealing himself to mankind. If history in general can help us to better understand why the world is the way that it is today, much more so does the history of the supernatural word of God help us to understand the world and why it is the way that it is, why we are the way that we are. Now, to this end, answers in Genesis' historical outline, the seven seas of history, it identifies seven key moments in history that have had and will have a profound effect on all humanity. These seven moments, as we've seen, they can all be identified with words starting with the letter C. That's why we say the seven C's of history. You know, this is obviously not an exhaustive outline of historical events or even of all the major historical events that have taken place, even in the Bible. But these seven C's are a good framework for you and I to understand what has happened in history. If you want to think about what is is our history, what is history of the world? these seven C's will boil down to the most essential events. We can know what happened in history, and it's useful for explaining that history to those who do not know Christ, or those who might not be familiar with the Bible. Now let's walk through the seven C's again, and this time we'll again be starting with our first C, which is creation. Now according to a plain reading of Genesis 1, which is the way we ought to take the text, God made our whole universe, every kind of living creature and the first two humans in a period of six twenty-four hour days. God declared his creation to be very good and he rested on the seventh day. This is when humanity officially began. So it's a pretty important event in our history. Now note that the way we started was part of God's very good, even perfect creation. Now, when exactly did this happen? Can we set an approximate date for creation? Well, I'm going to assert, and answer in Genesis asserts, that we can. And not even based off of radiometric dating or the fossil record, the Bible itself gives us indicators to the timing of creation. And for you to see this, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5. I want you to see something, even though we're not going to read it specifically. If you're at Genesis 5 and you look at the text, you'll notice that you have in front of you a genealogical list. Notice what is included in this genealogy. We have some specific details, specific information, not only about persons and their names, but also how long each person lived and, interestingly, when each person sired a specific descendant. Now, this list begins with Adam, and it makes its way to Noah and his sons. Now, think about it. Using this information provided by Moses, how could we figure out how much time passed between Adam and Noah? Well, it should be pretty simple. We just add up the years. You start with how long a father lived until he bore his son. Like, for example, uh, in verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. So 130 years. You take this and then you add it to the number of years of the next descendant. You add how long his son lived before being uh, before bearing a grandson. And then you add how long his grandson lived before bearing a great grandson and so forth. You add up the years. Until we get the next descendant. When we do this. And when we combine it. When we combine the information we see here. With a very similar genealogy. In terms of its layout. In Genesis 11. We can. Gain. An estimate. We can gain. A, a, or we can calculate. How long. Were the years. Between Adam. And Abraham. Now, Genesis 5 goes from Adam to Noah. Genesis 11 goes from, uh, well, Genesis 5 goes to Noah and his sons. And Genesis 11 goes from Noah's sons to Abraham. When we add up the years for all the times that it it took for a person to beget a descendant, we can conclude that Abraham lived about 2,000 years after Adam, that's about how much time if you add up the numbers. Abraham lives about 2,000 years after Adam. And if we examine the genealogies involving Abraham that come later in the Pentateuch, and if we look for other time clues in the Bible, and we consult some extra biblical sources of information that coincide with these biblical clues, then we can conclude that Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. So then from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years, Abraham to Christ, about 2,000 years. As best as we can tell, Jesus, our Lord, was born around 4 BC, give or take a couple of years. And considering how much time has elapsed between 4 BC and now, how long ago from today, according to these calculations, did Adam live? 2,000? plus 2000 to about 2000, and you get 6,000 years. 6,000 years, which is why I say Answers in Genesis says that our first C, creation, took place around 4000 BC. When was creation? About 4000 BC. Now, some theologians in church history have sought to be more precise than that. Answers in Genesis specifically uses the work of a man named James Usher, an archbishop, uh, I believe, in the Anglican Church uh, in the 18th century or 19th century. They've sought to be more precise than 4,000. I'm just going to say 4,000. So for our first see, God created time, the universe, and mankind. He began the story of redemption around 4,000 B.C. Now, I know some evangelical theologians, and certainly others, will claim that the genealogies that we have here in Genesis 5 and 11 have gaps in them. And so they cannot be trusted to provide strict chronological information. Now, I would say this is not the case. And I'll give you a little bit of the reason why. We'll discuss this in more detail a little bit later on as we move through the course. Why can we trust that we do have legitimate chronological information in these genealogies and that there aren't gaps in there? Well, it should be noted that there are gaps in other genealogies in the Bible, but those genealogies are of a different character than those ones that we see in Genesis five and eleven. The genealogies in Genesis; these two genealogies are the only ones in the Bible that contain specific time information. Go to Matthew; it'll talk about Jesus' uh, genealogy, and you'll get the number of years between, or the number of years of how long someone lived, or especially when they begat a descendant. But you do have those here. This would actually make it a little bit similar to the, the record of kings and chronicles that tells you how long a certain king lived. And those certainly don't have any gaps. So these are unique compared to the other genealogies in the Bible. You could even say it's a different genre of genealogy. In fact, I think it's interesting. if you, As you move through the rest of the Torah, you'll notice that Moses keeps on giving a lot of time details. They'll say how long the people of Israel stayed in a certain place. And then when they moved on. And we might ask why. And I believe the answer is is that God's spirit and Moses, they wanted Israel to know just where they fit in God's history of the world. Genesis and the Torah as a whole, they very much are concerned with explaining to the people of Israel, where did you come from? Where are you and where are you going? And so a lot of this specific time information is used to that purpose. That's great because if Israel was informed by those time details, then so can we be. Now, I will say that, or so this is why I say that 6,000 years is what the Bible leads us to understand the age of the world. And so the creation date around 4,000 BC don't see a need for gaps in these genealogies, we can use this time information, I believe, as God meant. Now, if you do see gaps in these genealogies, and some evangelical commentators do allow for gaps or assert gaps, such commentators generally conclude that no more than 10,000 years, sometimes they'll stretch it even up to 20,000 years, no more than 10,000 years passed between Adam And Abraham let's see Adam and Abraham or no no no, I'm since Adam and to to where we are today this is why when young earth when you talk about young earth creationism it's usually defined as believing that the earth is less than 10,000 years old again some might stretch it up to 20,000 years 15,000 years but young earth creationism usually is meant to say that the earth is 10,000 years or less I think we can do better than that I think the unique geolo- genealogies that we have in Genesis 5 and 11 shows that the earth is 6,000 years old. And that's why I say creation at 4,000 BC. Now, again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Now, the universe, when it was created by God, was free of death, free of disease, free of pain, free of suffering, and free of sin. But all of this, of course, quickly changed. And our second seed, that's corruption. This is the event we know as the fall man rebels against God and sin enters the world. Now, how much time went by between the creation of man and his fall into sin? Now, here we don't get specific time details. But from what the Bible does show us, it does seem like not very much time went by. In fact, most evangelical commentators, most commentators suggest that sin entered the world soon after the close of the creation week. Now, we won't dwell on why we think that exactly right now. We will talk about that in a later class. But we're talking. Just understand now that the second seed corruption takes place very soon after the first, after creation. Now, man's act of rebellion against God not only impacted Adam and Eve, but it also impacted the rest of the created universe. Listen to what Romans eight says. Romans eight twenty to twenty two. You can turn there if you like. Romans 8, 20 to 22 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, God made a good universe, and a good universe does not include futility. But sin brought futility into the world. Adam brought futility into the world. God's perfect creation was quickly marred by man's sin. Man died spiritually, he became cursed, and the whole universe became subject to death, corruption, and futility. So this is another extremely important moment in mankind's history. This is when the world became futile. This is when the world became cursed, our world. And this is where man died spiritually. Sin, unfortunately, increased on the earth as mankind found more and more ways to deny God's authority, deny God's loveliness. And increased to such a level that in Genesis 6, God declares that he's sorry that he made man. And he planned to wipe man out. But it was going to rescue one man. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We hear these events on the category of our third seed, catastrophe. Now, we're going to put a date for this. When did the flood take place? We're going to assert around 2350 BC, 2350 BC. So this would be about 1,600 years, 1,650 years after creation, according to the Genesis genealogies. Remember, we get some information from Adam to Noah. And some time information about the flood, which is why we assert this date around 2350. God sent a global flood to judge mankind. He designed this flood to destroy all air-breathing, all land-dwelling creatures. This is not a hyperbolically described local flood, as some evangelicals claim today. This was a worldwide flood that completely covered all land on the earth, even the highest mountains, according to Genesis 7, 19-20. Now, the results of this globe-impacting event extend to all humans today. Worldwide geology was fundamentally altered. Even today, scientists observe rock layers that extend across whole continents and contain billions of dead things. While scientists interpret the meaning of these layers according to their presuppositions, we know the trustworthiness of the Bible. Such geological findings are consistent with what we'd expect of a worldwide flood. Now, there are some details that are difficult to figure out, and creating a, a a model that's entirely consistent is a challenge, but we do see what we would expect to see from the Bible when we think of geology. Humanity survived this catastrophe only because of God's grace to Noah, but the diversity in the gene pools of mankind and the different animal kinds was probably drastically reduced by the flood. Do you know anything about genetics or inheritance, you know that information is passed down in a certain way. And there was a, a large expansion and a manifestation of that information, both in humankind and animal kinds. With animals, we talk about different species of animals. That's just genetic variation playing out. But with the flood, it got funneled back together. So You just had two of most of the animals, and then you had a, one family going into the ark. So a lot of that information, that genetic variation was likely lost. Even today, since the flood, we will continue to have species or various animals, even whole kinds of animals that will go extinct. And so there's this loss of information. I kind of think it would be interesting how different did or what were some of the variations of animals and even people that we don't even see today because of the flood. Anyways. We're certainly going to have a lot more to say about the flood going forward in our in our curriculum. We'll talk through some of the issues of how did Noah fit all the animals on the ark? How did the flood reshape the earth? What are some theories about that? What are some evidences for that? We'll talk about many other details related to the flood. But certainly this is another hugely important event in the history of all people. But so is another event that came soon after the flood. Only about 100 years after the flood, we have another one that fundamentally Affected humans. It changed the relationships between people everywhere. And that's our fourth C, confusion. Now, hopefully you're getting these C's and they're sticking in your mind. You've got creation around 4000 BC. You've got corruption also around 4000 BC. Then you have the flood, the catastrophe around 2350 BC. And now we're looking at confusion. And uh, we're going to assert a date of 2240 BC. And I'll tell you why we do that in just a second. But what's going on in this fourth sea? Well, not learning from the flood, without a heart change to love and obey God, Noah's descendants soon gathered together to rebel against God, to build a city and a tower for their own glory. And this rebellion, too, would end up having a significant impact on all humanity. Because to inhibit man's rebellion, God broke mankind's one language into many languages forcing different families to scatter across the globe by themselves. People who spoke the same language stuck together and they separated from those who didn't speak the same language. This scattering separated the gene pools of man. Also, these various people groups, not only did they genetically isolate themselves from one another, of course there's gonna be intermingling periodically, but as they spoke different languages from each other, they also developed separate cultures, separate traditions. And as a result of these, as a result of this separation and independent development, they increasingly looked different from one another. This is the origin of the people groups that we know today. Now, where specifically did Noah's descendants go? It's actually remarkable that the Bible tells us. Genesis 10, we get the details in the sections sometimes called the table of the nations. And it tells us where the different people groups ended up going, where the descendants of Noah and uh, his sons, how they diversified and where they went. And when we get there in our chronological study, I'll put up a map that shows generally where these descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth went. But again, this is remarkable that God has such specific information, not only about timing, but also about location for the people of Israel and for us. I mentioned that Babel. this incident at Babel probably took place about 100 years after the flood. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at Genesis 10, verse 25. This is part of the table of the nations. Verse 25 of this chapter says this. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, the name Peleg means division. Since the Tower of Babel is then discussed in the very next chapter, Genesis 11, and because Genesis does not talk about specifically any other kind of world division, The division most likely meant by Peleg's name is the division of people at the Tower of Babel. I think some people want to see it as the division of the continents. I think that's less likely. Contextually, probably we're talking about the division of people at Babel. If you look at the verses leading up to verse 25, from verses 21 to 25, notice how many generations after Shem, Peleg is born. So just uh, going back to verse 21. Shem's the father of Eber. Uh, okay, yeah, that's mentioned there. And then we have Elam. And then Aram. And then our Paxad, And then Eber is mentioned again, and we have Peleg. So we have our Paxad, Shelah, Eber, and then Peleg. It's four generations. Now, if we allow 20 to 40 years per generation, so that Babel would probably have taken place between 80 to 160 years after the flood. Not that long of a gap. Not that long of a, not much time had gone by. It's likely that the generations were shorter rather than longer. And so we can estimate a date for Babel, and we, we would align this with other things in the scriptures, to around 2240 B.C. So, we've covered our first four Cs. We have creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion. All extremely important events for mankind. The implications of each is felt by all of us today. We're all affected by these things. Now, interesting, all of this is taking place that only in Genesis 11. Four hugely significant events in only the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Now, this fact should make us appreciate a few things. One, there is a lot of very important history that has happened way before you and I are even born. We can sometimes get very myopic about how we understand the world and how we understand life. I think everything begins with us or began with the United States. Thousands of years ago, events were happening that dramatically affect how we live today. There's a ton that happened in the past that's important. We need to appreciate that fact. Two, another thing we need to appreciate is that the beginning of Genesis is very important to get right. These are hugely significant events. They're right in the beginning of Genesis, and yet the first 11 chapters of Genesis are some of the most attacked in the Bible. This is fundamental fundamental information. If it's wrong or if it's inaccurate, that has huge implications. So we need to pay close attention to what beginning of Genesis says, and we need to be able to defend what the beginning of Genesis says. What we have here is some of the most fundamental information for our origins and why the world is the way it is today. We can even say, thirdly, that much of the relevance of the gospel message is tied up in a correct understanding of humanity's origin and humanity's history. I mean, think about it. If Adam didn't really exist, if the fall never really happened, if the flood was just some big exaggeration, or if Babel was just a myth? Not only does this misinformation have massive implications about the Bible's inerrancy and clarity, but it wreaks havoc on the gospel message, and it leaves us without answers to some of, the life's, some of life's most basic questions. Why is the world like this? Why am I like this? What is the solution to man's woes today? This is part of the reason why we're using Answers Bible on at Calvary. We want to be able to uphold Genesis 1 to 11 along with the rest of the Bible as accurate, clear, and relevant history. Now, we'll talk a little bit later on in the class. There's a ton of pressure, though, to compromise on these chapters, to reinterpret them. Now, our fifth C is going to jump a pretty long distance in time. Our fifth C is Christ, appearing around 4 BC. Christ appears more than 2,000 years after the confusion at Babel. There's a lot of old, a lot of events in the Old Testament leading up to Christ with the nation of Israel. In fact, we could probably do a whole separate list of seas relating to Israel. We could talk about the covenant with Abraham, talk about the commandments with Moses, the camping in the wilderness, wandering, the conquest of the Promised Land the crown or the time of the kings, the captivity and exile. But the culmination of what God was doing with Israel comes with Christ. So that's why we don't include those other Cs. They are important. But the culmination of all of that, of what God was doing with Israel is with Christ. Galatians 4, Galatians 4 verses 4 to 5 says this, Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This event, the coming of Christ in his incarnation, that obviously also had worldwide implications. It was the, the beginning, and in many ways the, the total fulfillment of many promises given to Abraham and to his descendants. Through Jesus, through this specific seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to save his people from their sin. This sin was brought into the world by the first Adam. The last Adam functioned as a new representative for mankind. Jesus freed all those who believe in him, from the curse of Adam's sin. In this 5th C, we're talking about how Jesus came to earth as a man or the son came to earth as a man, lived a perfect and sinless life on the earth and then became the righteous substitute on man's behalf. And that was via the 6th C, the cross. We have the birth of Christ around 4 BC, we have the cross around AD 30. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Was there another way? Well, no. No, indeed, because Jesus' experience in the garden revealed that the cross was absolutely necessary. What did Jesus ask his father in the garden? If it's possible, take this cup from me. And we'll have more to say about that later on, but one of the implications of that statement is it is not possible. That had to happen. What happened with Christ on the cross Had to happen for God's glory and for the salvation of man from his sin. To reconcile us to God, Jesus had to suffer the full, holy, and boiling anger of God against our sin in himself. As God, Jesus was able to bear and pay once for all the infinite penalty of sin that sin requires and that God's justice requires. As man, however, Jesus was able to stand in the place of sinners and act as their representative. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. If he wasn't God, he couldn't have accomplished the work. But if he wasn't man, he couldn't apply the work to us because we needed a human representative. In so doing, Jesus took our sin. If you're a believer, he took your sin, paid it off, and gave you his righteousness through his life and death. We see this described in Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 19 to 22. Colossians 1, 19 to 22 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, fullness of deity, the fullness of God, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. I love it. Finished. Reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to resent you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What a wonderful statement. Even from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan. It was set for God to send Christ to the cross to redeem people for himself. Now, the major moments of history, the other seas that we've discussed, especially the first four, they all point to this moment in one way or another. They, they point to Christ. Adam points to Christ. The fall points to Christ. The flood points to Christ. Babel points to Christ. They all point to various needs that man has, the need, ultimately, of another human a human representative to bring redemption. We need someone like Adam, but who succeeded where Adam failed. We need someone to redeem us from the curse, from sin, from death. To rescue us from the judgment of God that was so evident in the flood. And to bring us reconciliation, both with God and with one another. The reconciliation that her to reconcile us from the divisions that were intensified at Babel. Amazingly, though the first Adam brought death into the world through sin, the last Adam, Jesus, brought life into the world for all men who would believe in him. Now, it might be a toss-up to consider what is the most major event in human history. Is it the incarnation? Is it the cross? Is it the resurrection? Certainly, they're all closely related. And together, I think they do make up the most major events in human history. Nothing was more monumental to humanity, to you and I, than our God coming to earth, living a perfect life before the Father, and dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. But just as the first seas point to Christ and his work, which was fully accomplished, praise God, so does the last seed point to Christ which technically isn't history since it's in the future, but God has made it so sure of happening, we can think of it as history. It just hasn't happened yet. It's set in God's mind. And so it is indeed history. If Christ redeemed a bride for himself on the cross, which the Bible says he did, in keeping with the wedding metaphor, what does the bride wait for in the future? The consummation. This is our seventh and last scene. The exact timing of the consummation is unknown. This is sometime in the future, a date soon, and that is one that's getting ever closer. We sometimes talk about Christ's second coming. This is what we mean with the term consummation. Now understand that rather than one particular event, the consummation represents a series of events that all have to do with the summing up of all things in Christ. What are these events? Well, Christ will one day come back to gather his own in the rapture and keep them forever with him. Christ will judge wickedness on the earth in the great tribulation. And at its end, he will destroy or he will descend to earth and destroy all those who rebel against him. Christ will then restore the earth and set up an earthly kingdom in Israel for a thousand years, reigning in perfect righteousness and justice as the promised descendant of David. At the end of the 1,000 years, Christ will quash a final rebellion led by Satan and then commence the great white throne judgment. At that point, the old earth and old heavens will pass away in great heat. Every person will then be judged according to the records that God has kept of them. The wicked, according to those records, according to those books, they are thrown into the lake of fire forever. The righteous are led with Christ into a new earth and new heavens. These, This new heaven and the new earth, they are different from the old versions, not only by their total perfection, by the total absence of sin, death, pain, and sorrow, but also because God himself dwells on the earth with his redeemed bride. In the New Jerusalem. Now that is wonderful. And this is where all of history is going to the final consummation God's people dwelling with God and enjoying Him forever. What a wonderful destiny, but what a fearful destiny for those who do not know God and will not submit themselves to God. Because where is history leading them? To eternal destruction, eternal punishment for rebellion against God. That's again the, where we see illustrated that, that concept the kindness and severity of God. His love is justice. So in the seven seas then, we have a fundamental outline of all human history. Creation around 4000 BC. Corruption around the same time. Catastrophe. 2350 BC, Confusion, 2240 BC, Christ around 4 BC, the cross around AD 30, and then the consummation to come someday very soon. Now we need to understand God's history, the true history of mankind, if we really want to understand reality. But unfortunately, many deny this history. Not only the timing of this history, this history, but the factual nature of this history. And they come up with a substitute history. And this is most obvious in our secular culture. Let's now consider our secular culture's viewpoint of the seven seas of history. How would they describe what we've just described? Now, this is according to the wisdom of our world. Creation. Well, the most popular popular idea currently for how the universe began is not what the Bible says, but it is the Big Bang. Big Bang was supposed to have taken place about uh, 14 billion years ago, with the Earth forming about four and a half billion years ago. Secular view, there never was a creator. The universe and life were created by chance. Matter was created by a bang. Life evolved from molecules to proteins to single-celled organisms, eventually to mankind. More specifically, current evolutionary theory is that man evolved from apes or ape-like ancestors. And the various people groups that we see in the world today are the result of different evolutions of man in different places. About corruption, what is the world's view? What is the secular culture's view of sin and corruption? Well, there's no such thing. From an evolutionary perspective, there has always been death, disease, and struggle Behaviors like violent rage, selfishness, adultery, they're not sins. They're mere products of biology. They're evolutionary holdovers. They're disorders of the brain. Much, if not all we do, people suggest, is a product of our genes, our upbringing, and our social economic circumstances. There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as corruption. What is the secular view of the flood? Never happened. Or if it did, it was local and insignificant. Things have proceeded in the past generally in the same way they do today. This is the idea of uniformitarianism. We can use science to understand the path because things have always been the same. Everything is slow, gradual processes. If the flood is a myth, then so is Babel and the spreading out of the peoples from the Middle East. Differences of people... In their languages, their culture and appearance, they are to be explained by evolution and the process of natural selection. According to mere chance, people evolve differently in different parts of the world. What is the secular view of Christ? Some say he didn't exist, but that's actually a very intellectually uh, untenable position. There's tons of historical documentation of Christ. But those who do concede that he exists, they say he's a good teacher, good example, he was not God. It's not the Lord. It's not the Savior. What about the cross? Well, the death on the cross was certainly not about delivering mankind from sin or the wrath of God. The cross was a tragic accident. The Jews and Romans putting to death an innocent and good man. Or maybe it was the sad end of a zealous but deluded Jewish reformer. Or even it was the noble sacrifice of a person who sought to set forth a positive moral example for others to follow. But again, this is not about uh, propitiation. This is not about making man right with God. What about the consummation? Where is history heading according to a secular perspective? Well, it's not very hopeful. With such different views of these significant historical events, it's only natural that the secular view of the future would be very different. According to secular thinking, What happens to people when they die? Well, they just return to dust. There's no soul. There's no afterlife. Meanwhile, man will continue to evolve. But the individuals will die and come to nothing. What about the end of the universe? Well, two main views of the end. They see either the the end of the universe coming with a whimper or with another bang. The The whimper is something... Sometimes described as heat death, the idea is that the universe will gradually grow colder and colder until everything is static and dead. The idea of the universe ending with a bang is that the universe will begin to contract. It will squeeze back together into a huge crunching ball and this super pressurized collection of matter will then explode again and then perhaps spawn another universe. Uh, I think you can appreciate that this is an extremely different view of history, is it not? And as I say, your view of history is going to inform how you ought to live in the world today. Is it any surprise, then, that those who believe in a secular viewpoint, as outlined here, is it any surprise that they choose to act the way they do? As if sin is of no consequence As if life is all about satisfying various desires in the present, those behaviors make sense according to their proposed history. Now, thankfully, God, in his mercy, gave us the true history of the universe in the Bible, so that we do not have to walk about, as the rest do, in darkness, like blinded men. Now, I hope you're thankful for that. I mean, praise God that we have this record. Praise God that he revealed himself, because otherwise we would be lost. But God graciously did that for us. So again, here are the seven seas of history. And I hope that you'll remember these, memorize these. This is a useful outline for understanding the most fundamental events of our history and where history is going. Now, I am going to talk about a few application questions with you. And here I will ask for your audible participation. Number one, how do the moral and social issues of our society relate to man's attempted revision of God's history? If you're understanding my question, think about the problems in our society. How are they connected to our society's understanding of history? What do you think? I'll give you an example to maybe spur your thinking. One of the issues that we see is transgenderism, gay marriage, acceptance of homosexual practice. How does that relate to man's altered history of the world? Uh yes. That's right. God created them male and female. God created the two genders. But if you say God didn't create, we just evolved, well, then you can have transgenderism. If you say God created marriage and marriage is between biological man and biological woman, or if you deny that, well, then you can have homosexual relationships. You can have gay marriage. I mean, anything goes. So, You can see that what one chooses to believe about history is going to result in certain behaviors and really certain problems. I mean, transgenderism is insane, but this is the result of believing in a history without God. What are some other examples of this kind of thing? A problem in society that actually goes back to our understanding of history. Yeah, abortion. Can you explain that? Exactly. Right, right. If we don't have a a God, there's no true morality. It is about survival of the fittest. This child is an inconvenience to my survival. It is an inconvenience to my life. It doesn't have a right to exist. It doesn't have a right to dignity or life. So I can get rid of it. Yeah, this makes sense from a secular perspective. But it is a denial of what God actually did, in which he created every person. Even those who have not, let yet, not yet left the womb in the image of God. And he says, you shall not destroy my image. If you do, I will require it of you. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood, he shall be, sh- or by man, his blood shall be shed, according to Genesis 9. Yeah, gay marriage, transgenderism, abortion, what else? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's a good point. There is a lot of fear about global warming and um, environmental cataclysm. And if you see the universe as just coming about by chance, life on earth coming about by chance, then this is a serious issue because by chance it could all just be destroyed. It could all be ruined. We could could end up killing ourselves. That does not bring it to... Thinking that God actually created the world, God is governing the world, and he has promised, and this does not absolve us of the stewardship, but he has promised, I will preserve it. I will preserve it until it's time, until the time of the end. So, yeah, that's another great point, global warming and all the, and the incessant worry about the environment. We could add to this racism. That's a denial of what God did in creation and what God did at Babel. We are all one people. We are one blood ultimately, but racism doesn't see us like that. Sexual harassment and abuse, which we hear about, which we're hearing a lot about these days. Again, that goes back to creation in the fall. Political corruption that denies what God established after the flood. That denies what God will do in the consummation, that there will be a final judgment and a final redemption. Some people are so, so um, into politics and to the point of uh, absolutely hating those who have a different political persuasion because they believe that this is all there is. It, it, it comes down to politics. This is how we're going to save ourselves and the world. But you say, no, 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 if that salvation of uh, is coming in the consummation, that's when the world will be established in its justice. Again, we have a stewardship uh, that we are to fulfill in the present, but uh, we're not going to ultimately achieve that goal until Christ comes. Feminism, we could add to that denial of creation and what God established there. So again, I'm just trying to drive home the point. What you believe about human origins, what you believe about history, it has a profound effect on your thinking for the present and even your behavior for the present. This is one of the reasons why we want to take this seriously. We want to be able to defend the scriptures here. Another question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We've talked about the secular viewpoint, but is this what you're going to find with people? What will you, which of the following is are you most likely to encounter uh, among the people of the world? Those who com- hold to a completely secular worldview, those who hold to a completely biblical worldview, or those, those who hold to an inconsistent mixture? What do you think? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, I think that's true. You're probably going to encounter people who don't have a completely secular viewpoint. They'll affirm parts of it, but they'll also have some other ideas. In my own experience, and I'm sure many of you can attest when you're talking to people, there are plenty of people who will affirm a God even if it's not the God of the Bible. They'll affirm a creator even though they might also believe in evolution. I actually had a conversation on the way to the Ukraine STM this past summer with our driver to the airport and we got talking about spiritual things and he mentioned, he's like, I just can't believe that there's not a creator out there. I don't know how he did it, but I just can't believe that I can't believe what people are saying or asserting that it all came about by chance. And I think that's very telling. It's telling, first of all, that of this point that a lot of people do have a mixture of ideas. But I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is actually expressed in the Bible, even in the seven seas. That is that people have been created by God and are made in the image of God. They also experience common grace from God. And as Romans 1 emphasizes to us, they know the truth about God, even as they suppress it in unrighteousness. Therefore, they will live inconsistently. They will think inconsistently. You have people who embrace evolution but also believe in God. You have people who dogmatically assert that there is no such thing as dogmatic truth. Or you have people who deny God but nonetheless live as if there is such a thing as right and wrong, which you shouldn't be able to do. You shouldn't want to do if you deny God. But even in rebellion, people cannot rub out God's fingerprints on themselves and the universe. It's too well set in. Therefore, they will live inconsistently. And sometimes we can even do this too, as Christians. Even though we know the truth, we we can be inconsistent, not because simply of God's fingerprints, but because of the corruption and uh, the, the temptation to compromise and to go into sin. Part of what we do, we are to do as Christians, is to graciously... Call others out on their inconsistency and worldview. Draw their attention to the fact that they already know about God and suppress that knowledge. This fits right into what we call presuppositional apologetics, but we can show them, look, you're living inconsistently, and that's because what the Bible says is true. The Bible reveals why you live the way you do and even why you want to deny God. It all starts with the book of Genesis. Now, one other question I want to ask. Which of these seven events, the seven C's, do people in the church most often challenge and why? What do you think? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, I I think uh, creation is definitely going to be one of them. Not just the actual timing of creation, whether it's 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, but also the method of creation. Did God use evolution? Were there long ages? Was there a a satanic kingdom before God recreated the earth a second time? There's a lot of challenging, even within the church, on the subject of creation and thus connected with that there's going to be a lot of challenge when it comes to catastrophe the flood if you don't subscribe to a straightforward understanding of creation according to the bible then you're probably not going to subscribe to a straight- straightforward understanding of the flood let's say these two events maybe be also uh, corruption and confusion But those first four seven C's, they're the ones that seem to be coming under the most attack from people within the church. And the question is, why? I think the answer is, and I've already been alluding to this throughout the lesson, is that we're under pressure. Christians are under strong pressure from scientists, from society, to acknowledge secular theories and to make the Bible fit those theories. Rather than work the other way around, to critique man's theories by the Bible. And evangelicals any of us simply don't want to be labeled as backward naive unscientific unsophisticated so we really want to integrate what the world says i mean they sure seem to have lots of piles of evidence it surely must be true we've got to rethink how we understand the bible the struggle is real don't mind me saying the phrase pressure from society is real we feel it with evolutionary theories about origins We feel it with calls to recognize the legitimacy of transgenderism, homosexual relationships. We feel it more and more with women preachers and pastors of pressure to accept that total equality of man and woman in in the church and family. We are not unaffected by these cultural pressures, but we must respond to them rightly. And how do we do this? By going back to understanding and holding to what is spoken as the perfect and reliable scriptures. And not just the scriptures in general. Even the beginning books. The definitive answers on origins, marriage, headship in the church and family. They all have their basis. And which book? Genesis. That's why I say again, let us hold to Genesis. Just as much we do the rest of the scriptures. Hardly any Christians today will deny that Jesus is coming back. That there will be a consummation. And yet, we compromise on the fundamental, fundamental matters of origins. We're going to fill lots more about the details of Genesis and these topics we've discussed. If you say, "Wait, I'm not, I'm not quite convinced of the young Earth position, or I have some objections, and I'm not sure how they fit." Well, that's okay. I want to proceed forward, and I and I want to try and persuade you of uh, this this interpretation, this understanding of the Bible. But that's going to take some time. Just for now, remember the seven C's as a fundamental framework of history. And I would urge you look forward to where history is heading to God's people dwelling with God and enjoying him forever. If you have any questions or comments about today's lesson, you can email me or you can ask me when I see you in person, Lord willing next week. Next week we begin officially our study of creation and the book of Genesis. Finally, huzzah. So looking forward to that. And I think that will be a really edifying and enjoyable time of study. Let's close in God, I thank you for your people. I thank you for brothers and sisters at Calvary. Lord, I also thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing our history. We would be lost in really ignorant speculation without you revealing what you did. Not just what you did, and what happened with, uh, with Israel and with our Lord Christ, but also what will be. Lord, we look forward to the consummation. We long for that day. Not only when you will establish justice and you will make all that is wrong right, but we will just be with you, get to enjoy you, know you in a way that we can't even imagine. Lord God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the salvation that will come to us, that has come to us, but also will come to us. We praise you, God. I pray that Calvary would continue to praise you and grow in you today in their continuing service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Looking forward to seeing you next week.